Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And today we've got a recording from Warfest, um, made just a few weeks ago with Hal Sozopolsky, who's talking about his great-grandfather and his grandfather. Both had extraordinary wartime records and in very different circumstances. May I say what a pleasure it is to be here. When they asked me to do um, a personal history, I said, great, PowerPoint, I'm a professor at Brighton. No, 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 no PowerPoint. Okay, well, there's little cards then. No, no, it's live and unscripted. So I'm going to break the rules. I've got a little, little bit of um, some notes here I'd like to refer to. And it's going to be literally um, a fond and affectionate biography, but also a, a passing nod, if I may, to the general's son, the major, because um, he was such a modest man. He never talked about his own achievements. He spoke only of his father's. And yet he was a recipient of the Vituti military and a hero of the Warsaw Uprising. So it's my duty and pleasure, and far more the second than the first, to um, make sure we know about him. So the general was born in 1892 in Stanislavov, a Galician town in Poland. His father, a railway worker, died when he was quite young. So he was drawn to leadership first in his family. Um, He made money by doing um, tuition um, for um, his fellow pupils. And if you read his book, uh, Freely I Served, he tells a a story of of great hardship and so forth. 
um, but he clearly was um, a young man who was contemplative and solemn. So at 16, he was constricted into the Austrian army and um, there was some savage fighting um, at Preshmashil, um, which was a, a castle on the side of a mountain. For 100 days, there was fierce fighting, um, over 100,000 military deaths and um, 18,000 uh, civilian deaths, after which um, he, was, um, he went into the Polish army and had a gentle academic life in the staff college where he wrote textbooks and trained the recruits and so forth. And everything was fine until 1939. And we all know what happened then. By then, he was in charge of the children of Warsaw, um, a, a relatively elite uh, regiment which fought um, fiercely um, during the occupation. And he was then awarded his Vituti Militari. And I only realised this later on when I, I give this lecture all over the world about the general. When he was forming the brigade, he was wearing a Vituti Militari, and I couldn't work out how he got that so early on. And um, one of my buddies um, said, no, no, he got that um, for his fighting in the, um, in the Warsaw Uprising. The Vituti Militari is... Um, 1792, it's like a Polish Victoria Cross, and allegedly, if Wikipedia is to be believed, which it often isn't, is the longest or the oldest uh, military decoration that's still being handed out. He was, um, the, the, the children of Warsaw uh, capitulated eventually, and um, he was put in a prisoner of war camp, um, the Zirodov POW camp. Uh, he promptly escaped, and this is where he and his son went on divergent paths. His son, his son, became the commander of Collegium A of the Army Krakowia, the, the home army. And we'll talk about the dirty war they had to fight a little bit down the line. But the general um, escaped on a ship called the Abdepul with about 3,000 other, a, a ragtag of Polish soldiers um, escaping. And they arrived in England and the British didn't know what to do with them. Now, I'm sure you think this will be a... Um, very partisan lecture, biased completely in favour of the Poles, and that's exactly what it will be. So, <laughs> British as I am, because I was born here, I'm going to tell it as I find it, and then we can bump heads after the lecture if you want to, um, about all that. But the reality was, I don't think the British knew what to do with the Poles, because they were all over the place. There was just a whole ragtag of um, soldiers. Some of them were criminals, some were quite sick. So they sent them to Scotland, for the military equivalent of giving them a colouring book and some crayons and say, you go and keep yourself busy over there. Now, the, the soldiers were divided into three. General Maciek and General Pashkevich took the cream of the cream, the officers and the fittest soldiers, and Sosabowski received the rest. But he was delighted to do so. He said, I'm going to lick you into shape. And we've made no mention of parachutes hitherto. He hadn't even thought about having... Um, a parachute. In fact, they were, first, they were first called the Canadian Rifle Regiment because they thought they were going to get lots of Canadians. And so the name had various iterations. And then so either somebody mentioned it or he had this brainwave, The Shortest Way, which was the title of one of his books. You drop on like an eagle onto your enemy um, and the whole thing about parachuting came to be. So he started licking the poles into a parachute regiment and at some point they were called the first Polish independent parachute brigade. Independent of everyone, although they were resourced by the British because their goal was to liberate Warsaw. Now they were given the resources that were of no use to anyone else um, so they had to make do and they ended up in a place called Largo House which is a beautiful 
like a chateau in Scotland, which is hideously overgrown now. And they had to make do with what they had. So they made literally things to train parachutists out of wood. It was like a child's assault course. It was called the Monkey Grove. And they literally used this. And he licked them all into shape. A lot of the soldiers were quite ill, underfed. And um, if you ever come to my two-hour lecture, because I give a two-hour lecture on this, it's cracking lecture, seriously. No, no, if, if, if you've got a, a dinner you want to have a speaker at, there's no charge, of course, it's my pleasure and duty, but far more of a pleasure to talk about my great-grandfather and my grandfather. But anyway, they had the resources that no one else particularly wanted, and that extended eventually to things like the Whitley Bomber. Now, I don't know much about aeroplanes, but I do know, or I've been told, that the Whitley Bomber was very, very slow. In fact, if you saw a Whitley bomber coming towards you and you're on an anti-aircraft gun, you could light a fag, go and have your dinner, come back and still shoot it down. And the fact was that the, the Whitley bomber, you, you, a parachute is exit not by the side, but by a hole in the floor. And one of the rites of passage of the Pol Polish parachutes was called ringing the bell. You weren't a para until you clipped your jaw and lost a few teeth by hitting your jaw on the way out. At that point, Sergeant Valentinovich um, devised the Gapper, the Eagle, which is here, you can see on my little thing. This, by the way, is my ZPS gold badge. It's a badge given for feats of absolute heroism and bravery, which I conducted with a laser pointer and a laptop whilst giving lectures around the world. And, and it's quite sweet. The general got the first one and I got the last one, allegedly, which is quite a nice beginning and an end to the story. But it's, um, it's important we tell this. For the Gapper, the diving eagle became the symbol of the Polish paras. Um, which is a, um, a symbol that um, they use to now. And so, um, over a period of time, it was about four or five years, it, um, my great-grandfather turned what was a rabble of uh, disparate and eclectic soldiers, some of them weren't even soldiers, into a brigade. And the, the goal was to liberate Warsaw. Now, I give this lecture and I say these things, and, of course, there's a delightful chap called Colonel Mike Russell who wrote um, several books on this, and he sort of took me aside and said, Yes, that's all very well, but the reality is, could a brigade really liberate a city? And I thought, actually, fair point. So it was all about the aspiration to liberate Warsaw rather than the actuality. I don't know that could actually have happened, but that's what drove the soldiers along. And so when they were eventually seconded to the first airborne and sent into Arnhem, that was kind of a big thing. They wanted to fight, of course, but more than anything, they wanted to fight in Warsaw. But nevertheless, they went with a good heart, and that's what they did. Now, um, one of the things I like is I, being a science-y nerd, as you can probably see from my notebook, and if this doesn't fly, this lecture, we can convert it into a lecture on the elements, because the, the periodic table's my thing. If you like the Geiger Aliens quadrilogy, you know, Alien and Aliens and Alien Resurrection, it so happens that on Aliens, the second film, I am going somewhere with this, no fewer than three of the colonial marines were named after actors in Market Garden. There was uh, Hicks and Frost, which are the obvious ones, but Wiersbosky. Wiersbosky was one of the um, uh, marines, and he was a delightful chap called Edmund Wiersbosky, who was a CO in the 101st. And this happened because James Cameron, when he was writing the screenplay, apparently was reading Cornelius Ryan's book, which I think is a delightful fact, and by the nods I'm seeing around it, so do you too. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> at some point, uh, the brigade has been seconded to the first airborne, and um, they did that with a good heart, although they were a little bit uneasy about it. And by this time, my great-grandfather had fallen out with Frederick Browning. Now, I know we've heard earlier on that 
Frederick Browning got a very bad press, but I'm all for it. I'm, I'm very much in support of that approach because I have read the letter that he wrote about my great-grandfather in George Cholewczynski's book, where he described him as difficult to get on with, which he probably was, because we all are, it's genetic for us, um, but also incompetent and all these other horrible adjectives, which really were, there was no need for it. The reality was um, that uh, the brigade was seconded to the, the, the first airport, and a bridge too far isn't the kind of the gold standard of Arnhem. And I've, I have got a soft spot for the film for several reasons. First of all, they had to condense five or six days into perhaps two hours of screenplay, point one. But also, Gene Hackman really did capture the character of the general beautifully. He was as cantankerous as you saw. And the reason um, I can tell you that is they sent researchers to talk to Major Sosabowski to say what were his mannerisms. And there was one, the two scenes that I love are the one with um, Jeremy Kemp, when he's the RAF guy, pointing out, and um, Sean Connery says, well, in heaven's name, presumably you want us to land somewhere. And he said, yes, it's actually off the map over here. And he walks up to Jeremy Kemp and says, just checking whose side you are on. <laughs> Which, that, I don't know if he said that. It's the sort of thing he would have said, because he said it as he found it. And of course, the other brilliant one is with Denholm Elliott, who's very the sort of affable weather guy, saying, that's the thing with fog. It moves. Said, of course it moves. And that's, that's how he was. So they, they did capture it relatively well. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. So General Sosabowski was disappointed not to be going to Warsaw, uh, especially because the AK had sent before Operation Tempest a cipher saying, please come and help us, but it didn't happen. Um, but he said straight away, it, it, it can't work. How can it possibly work? There are nine different reasons. But he had said about Operation Comet, um, a parachute operation is not a purchase by instalments. It can't work. The whole point is surprise. Once the first clip has landed, that's the end. The surprise is therefore gone. And of course, that wasn't the way things were done in the British military machine. And he got a name for himself for being sort of over-assertive, and that never um, left it. So um, in the film, and I hope there's no children present, because the first of two F-words is going to come out. In the film, um, just before Gene Hackman jumps out of the plane, he's alleged to have said, uh, God bless Field Marshal Montgomery. But Alphonse Amashkoviak, who was standing behind him, says he didn't say that at all. He said, fuck you, Montgomery, and <laughs> they're not going to invite me back. I would like to think that's what he said, all right? So I'm sorry if he didn't like it. The one bit I didn't like about the film, and this is just a pet thing, there's a, there's a scene where a young British chap swims the, he swims the Rhine because the radios won't work, and he said, I'm terribly sorry, General Sosabowski, but blah. Um, that wasn't a British soldier, that was um, Captain Zwolanski, who was the, um, the liaison officer, Roy Urquhart's liaison officer, and I just thought that was a relatively unnecessary change they didn't need to make. And so, um, we all know the film, we all know the story, hopefully we've all read the book, it didn't work out, and um, if you ever get to see my lecture, we sort of analyse that to the nth degree. Um, but uh, someone had to be blamed, and we've heard that sometimes 30 Corps was blamed, sometimes the RF was blamed, but fairly and squarely, sorry, unfairly and unsquarely, the Poles were blamed. And I can tell you that for two reasons. First of all, um, some, about 2006, a young 
um, Dutch filmmaker called Hertien Lasje wrote, made a beautiful film um, which was subtitled God Bless Montgomery. And as part of the research for that, they went to RAF Norfolk and they found a cipher that Monty had written and it said um, the Poles had no keenness to fight, particularly if it meant risking their own lives. I don't want this unit here anymore. Send them to Italy with the rest of them. And that I find um, unconscionable because the Poles were, the Poles were, there might have been some Poles too, but the Poles were keen to fight. They were dropped south of the river. Their kit was dropped north, dropped north of the river. They tried to cross the, cross the Rhine in rubber boats because the ferry boats, which were supposed to be there, weren't there. And um, that was particularly unkind. I also bring your attention to the letter that Frederick Browning wrote, uh, suggesting to the, um, to the higher echelons that my great-grandfather was removed from his post because he was difficult to get on with, um, wanted everything done for him, and a whole load of things that... Um, they just weren't true. He was difficult to get on with. His son was difficult to get on with. My father's difficult to get on with. And no surprise, I'm difficult to get on with. It's on chromosome number 23, apparently, for us. But the reality was, he was a soldier's soldier. He obeyed his orders, but it didn't stop him from questioning orders um, from time to time. Um, so we'll come back to him in a minute. But I do want to pay um, more than a passing nod to his um, son. Major Sosabowski. Major Sosabowski stayed in um, Warsaw in 1939, and he became the commander of Collegium A of the AK, the Polish Home Army. And um, the Warsaw Uprising was a ghastly, ghastly affair. Um, he was um, um, he had started training as a, a military doctor, and um, he was. You know, his life has been set with tragedies. When he was, um, I think, 15, he jumped into a river and broke his neck on a, a rock, but he recovered from that. He lost one eye to cancer when he was, I think, 19. But on the fourth day uh, in the Walla district, he was shot by um, an explosive bullet and he was blinded. And he was taken to St. Lazar Hospital. Um, and it was his misfortune and Poland's misfortune that uh, the Derlenwanger Brigade were there. Now, the Derlingwanger Brigade, and it's worth looking up, were the SS Brigade that the SS didn't want in the SS. That, no, literally, they said, you are too brutal. They did some unspeakable war crimes, and Oscar Derlingwanger, was, he was a war criminal. I think he was executed after the war. And my grandfather was uh, transferred to the Carroll um, and Maria Hospital, um, and the Derlingwanger Brigade came and started executing the patients. And my grandmother um, came, she disguised him as a doctor, and don't forget, he was blinded two or three days previously, and she carried him through the sewers of Warsaw, and he was eventually smuggled out um, of uh, Warsaw and rejoined his father in England. And I say this because he died in 2000, and um, George Orwell once said, war makes monsters of us all, and it didn't make a monster out of him. He was, um, if there was ever a definition of nice old man, who felt fortunate, it was him. He said, I broke my neck when I was 15, I lost one eye when I was 19, I lost the other eye when I was in my 20s, I'm living on borrowed time, I'm lucky to be here. Which of us would say that when you've just lost your sight? Um, I, just, I just couldn't get in front of it. And to my shame, when I was in my teens and 20s, you know what, I didn't really care about all this. I wanted to do what young men do. Only when I had my own children, when I was in my 30s, I started sort of thinking about it and when my grandmother died um he stayed in his house he said i'm gonna you know take me out of here with my boots on even though he couldn't see and he had some people bringing me his lunch and stuff 
And I used to go and see him every couple of weeks. Um, and he started opening up. And he, he said, I think about the people I had to kill, because there was no Geneva Convention for us. One time we needed um, a German uniform. We were driving down the street in Warsaw. We saw a 19-year-old boy. We kidnapped him. We executed him and took his uniform. He just said it like that. And I sort of then realised, probably for the first time in my sort of wool-gathering brain, that it's not just the terrible things that we need to be grateful for that soldiers had to put up with, the terrible things they had to do or have done to them. It's the fact they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And that's why they get made into monsters, except they don't. Somehow, he was just a lovely, lovely old man. Um, he was so great in this whole the times we are at the minute. People talk about immigrants and refugees and stuff. He just used to go on about how grateful he was to this country, which, had, in fairness, had mistreated his father. And he, he went back to the hospital. He, he was a, um, a, a physiotherapy doctor. He contributed. And when Granny died, I went to see him, of course, and he was on the phone. And you could tell he was talking to the machine, the state. And there's a, you know, he was trying to explain something. I said, well, who, are you talking, who are you talking to? Granny's died. He said, I was talking to the... The, the, the pensions, the, the office for pensions. I wanted to stop Granny's pension because, of course, I can't take one single penny to which I'm not entitled. And I thought only he would have thought, of, thought like that. He used to go to St Dunstan's in Brighton, the home for blind ex-servicemen, and to my delight, his hobby was archery. <laughs> Can you imagine, in Rottingdean, uh, they think, shit, the, the, uh, the blind archers, put the car away, quick. It'd be like a, a fucking strongbow advert with arrows shooting everywhere. And the thing was, is that the way he did it, there was a little kind of rest, he'd rest it hung on for the height, and he'd hear the arrows hit those big straw targets. And the sound made it, it made a slightly different sound as it got to the middle. And he could beat anyone, he could beat me. He was quite happy sitting in his um, garden doing his archery. So he died in 2000, a month before his, his first great grandchild was born. Um, he was taken back to Warsaw and um, buried with a full military honours that he rightly deserved. The general, um, he was demobilised effectively. He was offered the Polish president under pressure from various governments, but notably the British one, um, relieved him of his command of the brigade and offered him to be inspector of salvage and disposal. My, my great-grandfather declined politely. Um, the, the, the brigade went on hunger strike and he walked in and said, boys, let's have dinner together and I'll go. He didn't kiss the colours, which is, to, you kiss the colours when you're leaving. He said, I'll be back. Um, he left at age 57 with £300 in the bank and no pension, which I thought was an unnecessarily cruel thing to do. So he was, a bit, he was not a businessman, let's be honest about it. He had two failed businesses and he ended up working for £6 a week, um, at, I think it was Acton Avionics Electrical. He was a storeman. And someone's got to be a storeman. I don't know that a two-star general should be a storeman, but General Maciej ended up being a waiter or a um, barman in Edinburgh. And the strange thing was that a lot of his soldiers were also working in the same factory, so they'd walk into the stores, snap to attention, of course, um, before then saying, can I have so-and-so? And it was, again, folklore that Folks would walk into General Maciek's restaurant and he'd walk up to take their order and they'd sort of jump up and snap to attention. And he said, no, no, it's different now. I'm taking your order for dinner. So, um, like I say, I kind of get to the point where we can ask some questions, perhaps. Um, 
I liked, I, I really did like um, Gene Hackman's um, characterization of my great-grandfather. It was, it was spot on. Um, he, he, he did speak like that. Um, he died when I was two. Um, he was difficult to get on with. He said things as he was, but he was also very loyal and he had a particular love for his soldiers they, and they loved him. Absolutely, he was like a father to them. Um, and I, I do like the characterization, how he would almost um, put people on the spot um, if they were saying something with which he didn't agree. Um, and so that's the way it was. Um, he was Stan the Storman um, during the week. He was General Sosabosk at weekends. He used to go and give um, some uh, lectures. And he was heroic in uh, hero in um, uh, Polish circles. And in 2006, or between 2000 and 2006, things started changing. Because um, Hertian, this Dutch um, fellow, wrote, made this, this film. And it said, um, he, he said he, this film was an idea because they were in the Arnhem um, Cemetery and there were some unkempt graves in the corner. And someone said, well, what are those ones over there? And someone flippantly said, oh, they're just some poles. Don't worry about that. And that stung someone. And so he started doing some research. And Prince Bernhard heard about it and um, things started moving. It, it was a pit, an injustice had been done that the Poles who spilt their blood for uh, the liberation of Holland or the attempted liberation of Holland um, had been uh, maligned and impugned and um, things started moving very, very fast. What happened was that um, the Dutch government decided to give um, the Willems Order, which is the top, the absolute top, it's the Victoria plus Delta X um, to the brigade and the 6th Air Assault Brigade came to receive that on the brigade's behalf and my great-grandfather was awarded the Bronze Lion, which is like a George Cross um, for, in recognition for what he did. Sadly, again, long after he died. But um, all our family and all the veterans were um, brought in, which I thought was very sweet, because the veterans finally saw some sort of um, acknowledgement of what they'd done. They didn't want to do on, and they wanted to do uh, Warsaw. But um, it, was a, it, was, it was like Trooping of the Colour. There was, there was a Polish brigade there, the, the, the Dutch marched, and uh, Queen Beatrix um, hosted us. It was uh, really sweet. Um, that's 25 minutes, so I'd like to sort of offer the floor for any questions there might be. You don't have to ask any questions if you don't want to. Um, and I'll try and... I've, I've had my two F words now, so I'm not going to... I just want to thank you for coming. It's really fascinating history. Um, the Poles throughout the war really fought long and hard. If you think of the Royal, Royal Navy units, um, the, the, the Air Force, of course, in terms of the fighter pilots that, that knocked down more German air, airplanes than, than, than some of the Brits, but, and also the brigade that you just talked about. What's Poland's attitude today towards all that effort and, and, and the, and the um, sacrifice and the hard work they put in? What, what, what's the thinking now in modern Poland to, to what happened then? Well, um, so, again, this is a bit I forgot to tell you. So the, the general couldn't go back to Poland because Poland was after the Yalta Agreement. He would be executed. And then, funny enough, his adjutant, Jerzy Dierda, did, and he was in prison for eight years. And, um, but after the, the fall of the Iron Curtain, he was a hero again. There's um, lots of schools named after him, scout troops, um, and the 6th Air Assault Brigade, which is now the 6th Airborne Brigade, is in, in recognition of him. Um, but at the risk of telling you one might-have-happened anecdote, the year after Market Garden, there was a commemoration. And, of course, my great-grandfather had no passport. So somehow he got on a plane and he went to Dutch 
immigration control and they said, you know, your passport, please. And I said, I haven't got one. I've got no state. So, well, you can't come in without a passport. And he says, you didn't fucking ask my passport last time I came, did you? <laughs> so, um, again, it, it's, I, I hope that happens. It's the sort of thing that he might have said. Um, I'm sure we've got time for yeah, sort of a few more questions. Um, first of all, I, I live in Poland and... Um, as soon as my kids are old enough to sit up straight, obviously I put the bridge too far on in front of them. And, and their camp, I think I've told you this, their camp when they built a kids' camp, you know, in, in the garden was called Camp Sobowiowskiego. So okay. um, that's... But the question I had, um, when you were younger, did people have any idea who you were and who your family were? For, for, I, I, I've got friends in Wembley and they were friends with the Komorowskis, and they had no idea who Komorowski was. They just thought he was some old Polish soldier. So did, did your friends at school know who you were? Well, funny enough, I was going to say this at the beginning. My surname, when I was a child, was a curse, not a blessing. Sausage Bosky, Tossa Bosky, Fuckowski, <laughs> Shit Wanksky. Um, and then, funny enough, the, um, the film came out in 1977, and one of my mates called Karwowski, he, you know, from the cinema, you used to get that magazine with what's coming out, and there was a picture of Gene Hackman on it, and it's not that I didn't know about it, but I didn't sort of realise, and suddenly, oh, that's the same name as yours. And they thought maybe that Sosabowski's like Smith, but it's not. There's one family called Sosabowski. Curiously, there's another family called Sosabowski, S-U-S, and there's one called um, S-A-S, and that's all due to mistakes made in the, the, in the church when they were in the, in the um, registry office when they were mistranscribing. So our Sosabowski name got split into three, but we're still the same family. So um, no is the short answer. But every now and then, like when I put my car in for service, some bloke says, oh, are you, do you know anything about General Sosabowski? And it's, yeah, it's my great-grandfather and stuff. So uh, nice of you to say so. Oh, I can't, can I touch this? Because you're not like Al then, are you? So um, how... Uh, my grandfather served under Monty, so I'm a massive fan of his. But obviously his treatment of the Poles was disgraceful. Um, have the British Airborne ever reached out to, to, to do what the Polish Airborne have done and what the Dutch have done? So as the Poles served alongside the British Airborne, have they ever reached out to do something in memorial? No, it's not really an airborne problem, though, is it? It's more of a... Is it a government... I think it's one of these things that it happened so long ago now that... Um, it's unlikely to change. But whenever I give this my lecture at... Um, it's a really good lecture, by the way. Have I told you that already? <laughs> um, I give it to lots of parachute regimental associations. And the reception I get is like the one I've got here, that you know, British though we all are, that was a disgraceful episode in, in sort of military diplomacy. And there really should be some sort of passing nod, um, if you will. But the reality is that... All Poles know that General Sosabowski was a hero. We're all here, and you're very kindly listening to me talk about him. So, I mean, we can acknowledge the fact that what happened happened, and you know, how important is a medal or a, something in the London Gazette? It's not that important, is it? We know what happened, so here we are. Um, I mean, my father used to get very partisan about it and all work himself up into a rage. I thought, well, what difference does, that, does it make? We know what happened. That's what's important. Uh, I don't know. No, he did say it, didn't he? That's what he does when he crosses the river. Yeah. Oh, string. No, string. That's what it means. My granny was so pissed off about that because they came. They showed them the screenplay. When the um, the poles are going across, pulling them the rope with um, 
the rubber boats, right? And then as the very light goes up, and they start being raped from the west of Boeing Heights, because the west of Boeing Heights were overlooking um, drill. It was, like, it was like a turkey shoot. And he said, schnur, schnur. And Granny said, that means string, not rope. You know, like putting a little bit of twine. So it, it was a kind of a mistranslation, which they probably should have picked up. But anyway, it's quite, we're talking about it, so it's funny. I'd really like to thank you very much for listening to me. It was a lovely, lovely afternoon. Well, that's all we've got time for today, but I hope you enjoyed that. And do tune in again to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Cheerio. Thank you.